part two of a live recording from the Kitchener-Waterloo Center of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada on episode 300, part two of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This episode was recorded live via Zoom on February 10th, 2023 with the KW Center of the RASC to celebrate our 300th episode. At our 100th and 200th episodes, many wrote to ask why we didn't celebrate anything. So in response to that, this is what we came up with for number 300. Connecting with amateur astronomers is a great way to learn astronomy, and the friendships forged by Starlight can enrich your life beyond the cosmos. So go check out your local astronomy club when you get a chance. We hope you enjoy part two of our 300th show. And this one, we're going to have a conversation on lunar observing with Marie, big telescope building with Peter, and lastly, a double star with Trevor. We're going to talk with, uh, with Marie Noonan next. Marie, you've been a frequent speaker at the Stargazing 101 meetings and a longtime lunar observer, and uh, you've got actually a few decades of experience on on me, I think, on observing the moon, and typically use a, a four-inch F9 Vixen Acromat from the 90s. So welcome to the podcast, Marie. Well, thank you very much. Great to speak with you again. We had a good, we had a good chat there uh, a few weeks ago, and uh it was really neat just to kind of see some of your gear and thanks so much for, for sending that uh, image along. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your beginnings in lunar observing and your ability to not see the moon as a nuisance like some of us may? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I began, I think my first recorded observation of the moon was in 1991 and it was made with a 60 millimeter Bushnell refractor that my father had given me. While I was sort of contemplating, you know, should I buy a, a six inch or an eight inch or a 12 inch? <laughs> so, so um, I, I and, and so I've just gone on from there. My next um, telescope was actually a, something I purchased from a gentleman who built it. It was a Dobsonian six inch um, I think the F ratio was maybe 4.5. So to look at the moon with that, I used to stop it down. I made a, a mask for an aperture mask um, to stop it down to four inches so that I could get a, um, a more precise view of the moon. Um, and then I moved on to a 10 inch daub, which I just absolutely loved. And I, um, I enjoyed Michael's comment when he he said he took his telescope out and it was worth every penny uh, for what he saw because that's exactly what I thought when I had the when I took out the ten inch daub, uh, Copernicus was up there and I I just thought wow look at all that ejecta around Copernicus it it was fabulous and I just thought this is worth every cent so um, I observed with that for a long time I and then I bought the four inch Vixen because I wasn't convinced. Uh, when it, I don't remember when this exactly what year this was, but when Mars came very close to Earth, you know, the closer to being in 60,000 years or something yeah, like that. I think that was 2003. I, yes. And I, I wasn't convinced at the time that my 10 inch was going to do a good job on Mars uh, because it didn't particularly, I, I felt. So I bought the four inch refractor and that's kind of what I've um, been using more regularly now, uh, first of all, because it's just uh, a little bit lighter and easier to, to move around. I am mostly observing from my backyard in Kitchener. So I often have to move the telescope. 
Uh, so this is a little bit easier for me to move, but it's it's a, a reasonable quality refractor. And um, I do occasionally use my go-tos on the moon. Um, you know, if we're at Bayfield and the moon happens to be, to be up for a little bit. Um, and I actually noticed uh, when Ellen and I were out observing the, co the comet in mid-January, we switched, uh, I switched to the moon. I, I took my refractor out as well. Um, and after the comet, you know, after it had got light, I switched between the refractor and the six inch go-to. And I actually, for that, um, at the time there was a, a good Western libration. So a very strong, I think it was about 7.7 .7 degrees. So we had a, a good view into the Mara Orientale. And I actually preferred the six inch for that um, because you were not looking uh, at a Terminator situation where you had lots of shadows. So you just got a really nice contrast with the, the dark areas of Laka Sotomni and so on. And the, um, the Rook Mountains. So that was, that was an interesting um, experience I had. Now, why is the moon not a nuisance to me? Uh, I, I understand why people think that. Uh, it's just because I guess I like visual observing and there's just so much you can get your teeth into on the moon, um, whether it be different geographical features, whether it be, um, you know, the just the, the changes in lighting as the Terminator moves across the surface or the different kinds of shadow patterns you can get. But you also have, um, as the moon gets full, you have uh, the tone, the different tones of lava on the moon. And um, you also, you can also observe some kinds of lunar textures, I think as well. I mean, apart just from the, the rockiness of the Apennine ranges and so on and so forth, um, there's also times when I've looked and think, well, gee, that area looks kind of rough and, and blocky. What, what is it? So, um, so I, I don't, uh, I don't find the moon to be a nuisance um, because it's just, to me, there's so much pleasure in trying to figure out all the things that I see on it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Marie, I, 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 I totally agree. <laughs> I love, <laughs> I love looking at the moon. I, you know, I love my deep, my deep sky, dark sky observing for sure. But, um, you know, the amount of detail that the moon provides and, and, you know, one of the things that really resonated with me, what you just said was just how it's ever changing, you know, as the Terminator crosses, uh, you know, the face of the moon, um, it's just different, you know, not just every night, but throughout the night, you know, it, it does change yes. over time. And, um, you know, a book that I just recently acquired here, it's, uh, it's called a portfolio of lunar drawings by Harold Hill. I'm not sure how well that comes across the, uh, the camera there, but, um, what, what, uh, I really like about this lunar book here is that it has a number of features sketched. Um, but at different points, uh, with different lighting, and it really shows how some of these, uh, features, um, sort of evolve and look different at different points because of the lighting and, and the shadow. Um, so anyway, I just thought I'd mention that real quick because, uh, I, I just find it a fascinating book to kind of coincide with my lunar observing and maybe just to, you know, dovetail or, 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 you know, a good segue is what, what do you use? What are your resources for observing the moon? 
Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, actually, I, I want to check out that book because I'm I think <laughs> I've heard this name before. Is that the guy who did a lot of sketches around the south in the south polar region, like down um Maupertui and yeah. You know, I'm not too sure of his work, uh, to be, to be honest. Um, uh, an observing friend of Chris and, and mine, uh, Mike O'Brien, uh, he acquired this book, um, in May and we were out observing together and he brought it and I was just fascinated by it. So I just bought it based on that. So I, <laughs> I don't know, uh, too much about, uh, Harold Hill, but, um, it's, it's a wonderful book. I, I can't recommend it enough. Okay. Well, I, um, I was telling Chris that when I first started, I just had an old National Geographic map of the moon that would have been published, you know, in the 1970s or, yeah, I'm assuming it was in the 1970s. So I was trying to use that to figure out what I was looking at. And I also had a little book, uh, which was like a Peterson guide to the stars and planets. And they had some lunar charts in there, which I was trying to read. And um, I, I was very happy when I, acquired um, the Rukul Atlas of the Moon because it's a very detailed atlas and it's probably still the one that I prefer, that I prefer to refer to. Um, the problem with that is the charts are perhaps rather small. They're very detailed, but they're a little bit small. So sometimes you would be trying to figure, you know, trying to figure out exactly what you were looking at and you would find, you know, you would see some feature and then it, you find that it's, it's spread over two or, or four sheets and you've kind of, in the end, you've just kind of lost what, you know, yeah. what was I looking at? What did I, I, I know I'm seeing something, but um, so I think life became so much easier for me when I started, when the, S, um, when the uh, NASA SVS, the visualization uh, called gallery moon phase and libration was available. So you can just mm -hmm. click on that for any time of day and you can see the whole, terminator and most of the things are labeled and usually the labels are, are not obscuring too too badly what you are wanting to look at but that that's been really nice to have that resource that's there um especially because i don't um photograph or sketch so that if i if I'm thinking about what I saw, I can I can go back to that SBS and dial back the hours and and take a look again to make sure, um, you know, to verify whatever I've observed. Um, and there there are times too when when you look at something on the moon and you think, hmm, you know, is this just me? Um, am I am I inventing this line from between two points? Is, is <laughs> Uh, a mistake that my eye is making or is it something is it a feature that's really there and maybe just doesn't have a name mm -hmm. which um is sometimes turns out to be so i think life became a lot easier when i had that resource and then um as i've just continued to observe and continue to be interested i started um using the um the geologic map that you're showing there. Mm. And I recently also um, downloaded the Lola topographic map of the moon. Mm. So, um, and, I, and I found that quite interesting, particularly as the other night, um, after having failed to find the common on Monday, which um, annoyed me considerably, 
uh, but the moon rose. So I, I looked at the moon and there was this enormous notch um, on the Terminator. So um, I forget how many days old the moon was at that point. You could still see the entire, you could still see Marocrisim and you could still see east of it. But there was this, this great big hunk out of, the, out of the Terminator of the moon. I thought, what can possibly be causing this? So I consulted um, my uh, my Rookle Atlas and I also have uh, Charles Wood's 21st century Atlas of the Moon. That is not quite his favorite. I, I use it, but it's not, I, I still have to consult other things with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is no name for this feature. I think what it is, I think there's this giant trough that extends eastward of what they call Mara Anguis. So this was kind of roughly even with the with the northern end of Mara Crisium. And but when I looked at the Lola topographic map, I thought, well, there's the feature and it's a big wide trough. So then I was trying to evaluate from the color grading um how deep could this trough be? And from I I I think it's maybe at least two thousand meters deep. Now oh, I'm wow. I could be I'm well, I could be wrong, and I'm not an expert, but yep. there's there's definitely a feature there. It looks like a trough, and the coloring of uh, the sh- the the bottom of the trough is a co- kind of colored a light blue, which is around which could be around zero um, datum on the moon, but but the edges of that trough are are white. So that's that's in the two thousand meter range. So. This is, and it has no name, so <laughs> I, I I need to do some more research on this, but I just thought, wow, this is really interesting, but you can really see that on the Lola topographic map, whereas when I, so I thought, well, I should go into the geologic map and try and figure out, is this a, is this a graben, a place where you have two uh, parallel faults and you've got a block of terrain that's dropped, and there's, it's not marked as such on that geologic map, so that's just um, one of the little puzzles that I need to to read about and see. I'm sure other people must have noticed this um, because because this was not this was not just like looking at <clears throat> uh, Valles Rita when it's when it's on the Terminator. You know, you can see there's a little trough there. This this is a very big feature, and it made a very noticeable notch on the moon. Hmm, that's fascinating. Um... Sometime in January, I was looking at the moon. I, I forget which night it was. And Chris and I talked briefly about this on a previous episode that we recorded together. And there was um, an object uh, like right on the Terminator that, you know, I can only describe as like a multi-layered sandwich or like a, a hamburger. And it was like a line, like a thin line of, you know, kind of lunar gray, black, another line of lunar gray black and then another line of lunar gray and it it looked like a little stacked sandwich and i have no idea what i was looking at and and um i was hoping to find a photograph like on cloudy nights or something like that um you know just to maybe do a little more research and and see what what feature i was looking at but i i was unsuccessful so uh but i i love stuff like that on the moon it's just um as you mentioned earlier there's just so much to see Okay, so it looks like a sandwich. Well, um, were, were we before first quarter or past first quarter? Might have been January 9th is sticking out in my mind, but I, I can't remember 
what phase that would have been at that time. So well, that's fine. Well, um, at some point, I will just go into the SPS on the 9th of January and see what I can. Yeah. I I don't recall anything that I can think of that reminds me of a sandwich, but it's quite. <laughs> But it's quite all right, because I told Ellen the other day that one of my flakier observations, I said, the crater Watt looks like a kidney basin, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is, you know, that's a very informal observation. But that's also telling us something about the crater, because the crater Steinheil has obviously um, slammed itself on top of that crater. So one, one would be older than the other. So I and I need to look that up on the geologic. One thing I like about the geologic map is that you get some hint of the of the age of the features that you're looking at. So um, I, I often consult it for that reason. That's great. Um, Marie, tell us a little bit when we were chatting uh, in the lead up to the show. Tell us a little bit about your walk down to the Apollo 17 area. You told me about. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's just. Um, it's it's something uh, I, I found out how to do. It's it's really not difficult at all. So this is on the eastern side of Mara Serenitatis, and you start at the crater Posidonius, which is the largest crater on the edge of Serenitatis, and you just you head south until you hit this little crater that sticks out. Um from the edge of the marin, and it looks like a little ear sticking out and it's black. Um, and then you you continue further south until you, let me just, I'm looking at my map here. And what, uh, so what you're, phase of the moon are we looking at here? Is this like a... Oh, what, I'm just, I've just got, I'm just holding my sky and telescope map of the moon. I've, you know, at about the five o'clock position, okay. you see this very dark, area if you're looking under high illumination. So if you're on the terminator, you're not going to see the color. But when you when you look under high illumination, you can see that that area is really, really dark. It's There's lots of dark lava around the edges of Serenitatis, but this is even darker. And so, you know, the question becomes, why is it so dark? And that's one of the reasons that, that site was chosen, because there was this very dark material there that they thought might possibly be younger um, might be a younger type of lava. And then they found that, in fact, it was just as old as everything else. But um, so, so that's kind of, that's something you would do under high illumination when you can see, when you can see the color differences. If you're just going down there, uh, when that area is near the terminator, sometimes, uh, particularly if the seeing is not all that steady, you just see a bunch of bumps there. So that would be um, North Ray, what is that? Am I in the right Apollo? North Ray and South Ray. Those would be the mountains there where the astronauts landed. So I, I've looked at that a few times and thought, how did they ever get in there? <laughs> but then you have to remember, well, you are looking at it from a, the distance of 384,000 kilometers, give or take. So there's more space down there than than what you think. But some when you sometimes when you look at it, it's just all you see are all the bumps and you just think, oh my gosh, you know, how did they? How did they get there? Cool. Well, yeah, thanks for that little tour. I, I think that's that was sort of interesting. You you walked me through that a bit in our in our pre-show chat a couple of weeks back. And uh I, you know, I, I've heard people give star tours before, but I've never been taken on sort of a lunar tour. 
and it's really neat. I, I mean, I can kind of whip up a star tour for somebody, but I never had somebody whip up a lunar tour for me like that before. It was, it was pretty, pretty neat. So Marie, we do have other things uh, to get to. So we were going to sure. talk about things like pyroclastic flows on the moon and observing that. And hopefully maybe one day you'll come back and join us and chat about those as well. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it was, it's really neat uh, mm-hmm. to hear how you're observing. Yeah, for sure. Thanks a lot, Marie. Really, really enjoyed that. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Well, thank you for for chatting and and sharing your book and your observation, which I look forward to to finding that sandwich if I can. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been near, you know, January 9th. It's still pretty dark after work, and Shane was probably just getting hungry. Well, <laughs> I, I I usually develop a, an unexplainable hunger for cheeseburgers when I'm observing, and this is not a this is real. I usually hit a drive through on my way home and and get a cheeseburger. So maybe that played into this. <laughs> Very good. Any questions uh, for for Marie or, or comments on 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 her? I got one here from Trevor. I'll I'll read. Uh, Trevor says uh, thanks, Marie. Looking forward to our next moonwalk. Oh, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a book in there. Moonwalking with Marie. That, I like the oh, sound of that. Any, yeah. any questions? She's dying of laughter. She's got her mute button on. <laughs> she's got to, yeah. She's got to do it. She's got to, she's got to do a series for Absolutely. us. Very good. Had a comment from Richard. It said, uh, excellent Marie, your wealth of lunar knowledge. Yeah. yeah. It's really, it's really cool. Um, I'm always fascinated. I'm not as much of a lunar observer, as, as Shane and others are. So I'm always fascinated to hear by people that are looking at the moon so much. And uh, yeah, I see Roger Waters has has uh, re-recorded the dark side of the moon recently. So we to that as well. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay. We're going we're gonna to keep on moving along here. We're going to moonwalk our way over to Peter. Good stuff. Well, Peter, I... Uh, you're a longtime telescope maker and an expert at building large, ultra-fast reflectors. Uh, Peter created many large and small scopes from 8-inch suitcase scopes and my favorite, the Perfect 10, to a 25-inch ultralight and many other fast telescopes. Peter is also super generous with his time, and he has helped many people make their telescope-making dreams reality. And currently, he is working with others to build not one... Not two, not three, not four, but five. He's working on five 20 inch F3 telescopes. And Peter helped the amateur telescope making community develop a new coding process for silvering mirrors, which he received um, the 2020 Ken Chilton Prize. And uh, also did a demonstration down at Stella, Stella Fane for people down there a couple of years back. And Peter, I even have a telescope that, that you built in my garage. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's sort of hard hard to believe how much uh, how much you've done. So uh, yeah, welcome to the show. I think this is gonna this is gonna be a blast. Uh, sort of doing this in front of some other people. We had a great great chat a few weeks back, and uh, yeah, this is gonna be blast. Oh yeah, that was the twelve inch. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, the twelve inch, and then yeah. you you had the CNC machine, jigsawed out all the parts, and uh, yeah. yeah, all that kind of. All that kind of good stuff. So uh, people should know uh, Peter and I spent uh, lots of nights observing together and maybe a few more uh, drinking pints of beer. I think that's probably a fair <laughs> sign. <laughs> so when people listen to the podcast, sometimes they'll hear me refer to the 25-inch scope um, that a friend would kind of let me view through. And uh, 
that scope was Peter's. And Peter, I'll never forget the views of the Saturn Nebulae, NGC 7009, um, through that telescope, because that 25 inch, you could see the little ANSI. It just, it, it looked like a very bad, faint image of Saturn through the clouds, but you could actually see the planetary nebulae uh, circle. And then you could see like those sort of fake rings. And uh, it was uh, something I never dreamed I'd ever see visually. It's uh, it's something really to look through these, these large telescopes. And the scene like M13 and the ring nebula, and all kinds of stuff like that, Peter. Just uh, just incredible, and I always appreciate you sharing those views with me. So, Chris, you forgot one thing. Oh, what's that? <laughs> Remember all the dark nebulae we looked through the Milky Way? I know. Oh, my goodness. That was fun. Everywhere. Just dark nebula everywhere. It's just like taking a magnifying glass to the Milky Way. So, Peter... Um, seems like you've you've really uh you know helped create an uptick in telescope making at the kw center for sure but um have you also noticed like an increase in telescope making and the interest in in people in general in in building telescopes just even in the general population well uh, certainly in the kw center we're doing the 520 inch f3 scopes we're also building two 16 inch scopes so you didn't even know about this oh. and 17 inch so there's there's a lot happening in, in our club and um, out in the industry, out in the in the ATM field, I think it is getting uh, more attention. People are coming back slowly, but if you if you think back, uh, the advent of the low cost and pretty decent quality Chinese scope, they really put a big dent into telescope building. Go mm-hmm. back thirty years ago, and a, a telescope cost as much as an automobile. Yeah, you had to build your own telescope. You couldn't. You couldn't afford to buy it, right? So the affordability wasn't really that, that good. Um, today, you have different options, and it's not necessary to build it unless you want to build something unique. You know, but now with inflation coming back, and I don't know if you've seen the price of Pyrex lately, but it's it's really um, gone through the roof. Yeah. So I think um, I tend to think uh, more people are going to be building. I think there's more people building today than there were maybe even a year or just t- ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, but one really needs uh, some mentors, people to help you. I've become a member of the uh, Oregon Scope Works OSW group, which is an excellent source, a really friendly community. Lots of them on cloudy nights as well. So and I think better resources are coming, becoming more available to people. Yeah. So you gotta you gotta tell us first about the five uh, twenty inch F threes. You gotta tell us a little bit about those. And then maybe if you can talk a little bit about the uh, the 16s that you're building as well. Sure, certainly. Um, okay. So it was actually Rhett who's on call today. Uh, Rhett McDonald. He, um, McKen, he um, came to me and he said, I really wanted a big telescope, like a 16-inch or 17-inch. I said, no, Rhett, what do you really want? He says, well, I really want a 20-inch. So I said, oh, I'll build one with you. <laughs> so, before we knew it, we, we had five of us going <laughs> going at it, and every everybody in the in the group is contributing something quite significant, and it's it's been really it's been really a, a, a fun journey. Uh, we 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 have the mirrors, we've ground the mirrors. Um, most of them are polished, and uh, some of them are part way through the figuring stage. The two sixteen inch, uh, there's a couple people in the club 
who wanted to build 16. One of them is going to uh, model his scope right after uh, Mike Renner's 16. Okay, yeah. It's a wonderful scope. And uh, the other fellow, Terry, who's uh, going to be building uh, a 16 inch using the same mechanics that we're doing with the 20s. Um, so it'll be an F3.75 to have a 16 inch focal length. Nice. Nice. Those would be some neat scopes. One thing I noticed um, before I, I turn it over to Shane for some of his questions um, is that those mirror blanks are for the 20 F3s anyway, they're black. Can you just like, what, what's it like? They're like a BVC or something like that. What's it like working with that kind of substrate? Yeah, so BVC is a vitrified cer ceramic. And there's, there's only one guy in the world that makes them, and he lives in uh, Quebec, Montreal. And um, he, made, he, he made them years ago. And then um, he stopped making them. And he came back into business and started making them one more time. And we were very fortunate to grab five of them. Uh, unfortunately, his health deteriorated, and he's not able to do it anymore. But the, but the black, the black ceramic is is really quite nice. It's very soft, and he's he slumped them for us. F three, so we didn't even have to grind. Like he saved us, I think about four hundred thousand. The, the sagita, the depth from the edge to the center is over four hundred thousand deep. So he did that for us as well. It's a nice material. It works really well. Nice. Very cool. Well, uh, maybe you'll have one of those left over and you can send it out to Shane uh, <laughs> or I. We, we, we'd be happy to look look after it for you for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, Peter, Chris tells me that you've made a, a briefcase or a, a suitcase telescope, and I'm, I'm extremely fascinated by that. Um, another, uh, friend of ours, uh, Eric out of the Calgary center, he has a, a briefcase or suitcase, uh, uh, telescope, and it inspired me to make a, a briefcase observatory, which is a 71 millimeter refractor, you know, and then all the, the fixings to set it up. And, you know, it's kind of my ultimate grab and go, but I'm super curious about your eight inch, uh, briefcase telescope. Yeah, well, that's great. I love portability. I guess my my thought process about portability started back in 1996, and I built my first scope, and um, I, I built port a portability theme into that. And I think it's a very important aspect because the scope that you're going to use, you're going to set up and use the most, uh, the one that's the easiest to to access and to use is the one you're you're going to use the most. You get the most use out of it. I also like traveling quite a bit, and I and I wanted a decent aperture, you know. I have a Televia 85. I could have used that, but I really wanted something bigger. Mm -hmm. Eight-inch travel scope. It fits into an 18-inch by 12-inch briefcase. Have you seen those aluminum briefcases people use for eyepieces? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have an entire eight-inch telescope that fits into that. <laughs> That's I incredible. Gonna, I don't know if you're going to post the photograph that I sent you, but you know when my wife saw the scope and she saw the uh, the briefcase next to it, she says, there's no way that scope is fitting into that little briefcase. I showed her. It certainly does. It's about, it's done some travels. Wow. Yeah. Styled that's it a... after. It's actually an eight inch F 5.3. And I styled it after Albert High's three pole, three pole concept and I asked him permission if I could borrow his ideas. And, and I went ahead and, and built it. And it wow. takes, it takes about nine minutes to set up, um, which is a little bit longer than I liked, but it works. And I can, I can adjust the balance. I can I can balance a 31 millimeter Nagler on there if I wanted to. Oh, that's really impressive. And and just to be able to have an eight inch telescope that you can take on an airplane, uh, I think that's amazing. <laughs> so uh, super, super neat. I love it. 
I should mention too one more thing. I, I did write an article about that scope. Oh, nights. If you uh, if you Google briefcase and then my last name procure, you'll you'll find it. So the entire plans of how I built the discussion of how I built it is in there. Oh wow! Thanks for sharing that. I, I will definitely check that out. Um, another thing that kind of intrigues me now. I'm a very big uh, Tolkien fan and love Lord of the Rings and. Chris also tells me you have a Hobbit telescope, and I'm probably equally as curious about this one now, too. Well, yeah, that's, um, I think many of the people in our club had looked through it, and I, unfortunately, and I was going to bring it out to your, your neck of the woods to show Chris, but I never did that yet. It really started with my my first um, telescope project back in 96. I built the two-pole the, the two design of telescope and I styled it after Ron Ravenberg's scope like Alice. I don't know if you've heard about that. And um it's a 12 and a half, it was a 12 and a half inch F5, and I designed it to be extremely portable. I had the, the secondary cage fit right into the mirror box. And then uh, everything was life was good up until I I I saw what Mel Bartels did. He built a six inch F2.8 and he just raved about it. And right away I wanted one. So <laughs> You cannot buy it. You know, I'm going back to 2012, 2013. There were only maybe just a small handful of them anywhere in the world. You had to make it. So actually, I, I found a piece of glass, 12 and a half inch. I ground it to F2.8 at a really deep, deep curve. And I remember, I think Mike Renner's in the audience there. I had a, I had a Christmas party with some of my buddies, my astronomy buddies. And uh, everyone is making fun of it. You know, they're saying the jokes, you know, it looks like a bird bath, flip the coins into the bird bath, you know, <laughs> I make it. it's going to give you mushy views. And it's a waste of time and all that. Well, that just made me want to do it even more. Uh -huh. <laughs> Alan Ward helped me with it. He helped me uh, polish and figure the mirror. And um, actually, um, uh, Rudy Dorner wants me, when I'm finished with this scope, he wants me to actually donate it to the Dorner Museum in Toronto. So I will do that. In, in me, I had the mirror done, and I invited those same folks back for first light. And, and I got to tell you, they all, all the jokes stopped. <laughs> <laughs> they said, wow. <laughs> Pretty much everyone that looks through it says, wow. You know, it gives great field, wide field of views. The image is tack sharp right to the very edge. It gets the pinpoints. Wow. Right. And decent planetary views. It's not as sharp as, of course, an F6, but they're, they're quite good. And ever since then, every every one of my scopes is going to be on the same way. Hmm. That's uh, that's amazing. That just that it's even hard for my brain to comprehend uh, an f two point eight. <laughs> that's that's incredible. Um, another thing that's of interest, uh, Peter. I understand you met uh, a fairly prominent amateur astronomer uh, named Al Nagler. <laughs> uh, could you tell us a little bit about that interaction? Yeah. So. Um... I believe it was 2016 or 27. I think it was 2016. Stella fame. Alan Ward and I went down there, and um, he brought a six-inch F10 Super Apple, and of course I brought the Hobbit scope. He uh, he entered it into the uh, into the optical prize or the competition, and he wanted me to do the same, so I I did, and he won all sorts of numerous prizes for that Super Apple. The only thing I won was a mechanical prize, but that's okay. But it was funny because uh, El Nagler goes every year, and I saw him walking on the hill in, at Stelfane, and this is during the daytime, and I, I asked him, 
Al, would you like to have a look through a 12 and a half inch F2.8? And uh, we're walking and he, and he stops and dead in his tracks. And he looks at me and he says, a paraboloid? <laughs> and he says, finger in the air. And he says, I'm coming. And sure enough, that night he came and he spent almost two hours with us. Wow. He was like a kid in the candy store. He was like, because he, he made the paracord too, which is the corrective eyepiece. He made the, all the tele eyepieces I have. Mm-hmm. He was just having a great time. And actually, um, Alan's uh, six-inch super opera was was right next to mine. He was going back and forth between the two scopes. And <laughs> he looks at us and he says, finally, some interesting scopes on the hill. <laughs> and, and it was Canadians. <laughs> that was fun. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. Hey, you never asked me why I called it the Hobbit scope. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Please, please tell us. So after uh, after I got it finished, um, I, I wanted to give it a name, like um, like Ron Ravenberg had a scope like Alice, and I wanted to give it some sort of a name. So I, I held a contest with my buddies, and I sent an email out, but I, and I had a photograph in the email. I had a photograph of the telescope. I didn't have the stand yet, so it was just on the ground, and I was hunched over looking, trying to look through the eyepiece, which is only about 34 inches off the ground, and all these ideas came, and, and, and it was... Uh, one of Alan's friends who he introduced me, uh, Roger, um, uh, can never pronounce his name, uh, Chertio Logi. He's, he's the, he works at the Mirror Lab in, in Arizona. He sends an email back to me and he says, good Lord, you're going to break your back looking through that telescope. That scope is made for hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the year of 2013. It. That was the year the Hobbit movie came out. So. Oh, perfect. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. So, uh, Peter, I, I referenced the uh, 25 inch uh, telescope, and and when we were chatting um, a couple of weeks back, you you mentioned that the that the mirror box for the 20 or, or what is it? it? It's something like part of the 25 inch or most of the 25 inch weighs less than the eight inch briefcase telescope. Is that the way it works? Yeah, yeah, it wow. does. Um, I, I have a tendency of repurposing mechanics. <laughs> I keep replacing optics. And and you're right. I wanted something. Remember, I was thinking uh, my theme was portability and lightweight. So I tried something different. I, I had a buddy who was uh, into model aircraft building, and he used foam, uh, fiberglass over foam core. And he, he said, you should try it. So I did a sample piece, you know, 12 inches long or so. And I was blown away how stiff that, that was. It was just, it was just beautiful. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll I'll try. I'll make a few parts, and and they worked quite well. So, um, so the 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 mirror box, sorry, the rocker box, the altitude bearings, and the secondary cage rings are all made of composite uh, fiberglass over foam core. The um, spider vanes are made of um, carbon fiber that I, that I laminated myself just to keep the weight down. So it it worked. It spoke with somewhere between. You know, 85, 90 pounds in that range. 25 inch scope. Compare that to 250 pounds from other manufacturers like um, Obsession. Very cool. And, and the mirror. Uh, sorry. No, go ahead. The, the mirror is, is it was a one inch thin uh, plate glass. It was a flat back mirror. And I managed to find a seven and a quarter inch elliptical secondary on surplus check for 125 bucks. So, you know, it was not a very expensive scope to build, but, you know, 
at the time I was into, I didn't want any biodegradables in, in, in my scopes at that time. So I, I stuck to uh, composites and aluminum framing and all of that. And the other thing is I wanted my feet to be on the ground. So I folded the light path down. And that's the scope that you look through, um, Chris. Yeah. 30 degree angle. I believe the eyepiece height at the zenith was was around 69 inches, something like that. You could just walk up to it and look. Yeah. It was wow. well. And I remember that it had a it had a secondary mirror on it that was like seven and a half inches or something. It was like a <laughs> yeah. It was like a 14-sided military spec second. Yeah. It was so weird. It was, it was it's a beautiful, I still have that secondary. And I'm going to use it on my 28 inch when I got that done. (laughs) (laughs) My only only complaint about that scope was that when you're looking at the Zenith, it kinked your neck. So I ended up, uh, I decided to go fast. So I I sold that mirror and I I bought a 24 inch BBC blank and I ground that to F3.3. Yeah. The scope I have today. And I silvered that mirror. Yeah. So is is that uh, 24 inch finished now or are you still working on it? Well, no, it's it's done. It's it's done. That looks like a neat scope. Yeah, so that's the one I'm going to bring out to, to out West for you to. Yeah, that would be wow. that would be amazing. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm already excited. <laughs> that's, that's that'll cool be incredible. That, the cool thing about that scope is uh, it had really great contrast because I had a nine inch bow fling too. I don't know if you remember that, Chris. Yep. So that sort of. The output of the focuser had this long baffling tube, and it was it only looked at the secondary, and the secondary only looked at the primary, and it was it just gave really great contrast. You know, focusing on baffling is the best thing that anybody can do for any any telescope. Refractors already have the baffling built in, but with with Newtonians, and, and I was looking at the at the scope that. Uh, that that Michael showed earlier, and I can see right away um, you can improve that scope by baffling it. A little bit better. How much does the uh, 24 inch uh, F it's F33 or F3? F well, I wanted F3, but um, I, I stopped, had to stop at F3.3. And how much does the whole scope 74 pounds just for the mirror? <laughs> wow, um, yeah, it's a two person job now, unfortunately. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but I imagine you get lots of offers of people willing to help, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah yeah and uh yeah one i think one of our last questions is uh is going to be peter um about the mirror silvering can you just uh tell us a little bit about um why you would silver a mirror versus using um an aluminum coating for a mirror okay that's a really great question the um once you got the mirror but for me i, I paid i think i paid about 900 dollars for the mirror to put the coating on it, the, the aluminumized coating, um, they wanted $2,500 US for that. Holy smokes. And yeah, there is a fellow, uh, Norm Fulham does coatings in Montreal, and he's far cheaper than that, but he doesn't do overcoatings, which means that he's, he's only got about an 80, 82% or so, 84% reflectivity, a little bit lower. Um, and there was a few guys in uh, the States who were starting silver mirrors. And um, that's what I wanted to try. So silvering, it worked beautifully the first time I did it on the 24-inch. And I, 
And honestly, you, you can silver a mirror for about a dollar an inch. So wow. say 20, 24 inches, you know, roughly $24 or so. Mind you, you're going to have some scrap left over, so it's going to be a little bit higher than that. But if you're doing one after the other, you can, you can certainly make it much more cost effective. And it's extremely reflective. The other thing that's cool about it is uh, silver. When you look through a silver mirror, uh, you're going to see st- color and stars that you've never seen before. Hmm. Spectral response of silver is wider than aluminum. And you'll see the nice blues and you'll see even the greens show up better. And then the reds just, just pop. It's beautiful. And, I'm, it's and you can do it at home. You don't have to ship it off anyway. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I remember we were observing together once um, uh, north of the city. And uh, I think we have Mike's 16 inch out and we have my five inch apochromat out. And you started talking about the fact that aluminum can change like the, uh, like the spectrum. And so it can, it can alter the appearance of the stars. I had never heard that before in all my years. And, and so I was really surprised to hear that from like a big reflector guy, like you talk, talk about that. Yeah, it's absolutely true. It, it, it basically, it's like, um, it's like an attenuator of different wavelengths. It, It doesn't, it transmits fairly well in the, in the, um, in the photopic region, but it's you know it has drop offs on the sides, which mm-hmm. so doesn't have pretty much. Yeah, very cool. I'm glad we got that on uh, on recording because sometimes I tell that to people and people are like, "Who told you that?" <laughs> oh, it absolutely <laughs> no, is true. I, I know this guy; he really builds telescopes. Sure, sure. sure. <laughs> well, you know what? You can see it really clearly if you've got a silvered mirror on a table and a luminized mirror. Take uh, some some Kleenex tissues and, and peel, them up, peel them back until you got one sheet laid over both of them. You'll see this, the aluminum looks like mud and the silver looks white mm-hmm. visually. And you can measure it. I've actually had it measured. We've got a photo spectrometer at work and I had it measured and it's just really beautiful. Very interesting. Thank you so much for this, Peter. Um, we, we could go on and on and on, yeah. I think. So yeah, I know. <laughs> try, to, try to keep this under control. So thank you so much for sharing uh, some of this in, in these sort of mini uh, conversations that we're having tonight. Really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, thanks, Peter. This was uh, fascinating. Anytime. Any uh, questions or comments for Peter um, before we, we move on? <laughs> On the 20, 24 inch. Uh, I still think it's light enough. We could get that to the top of my hill, Shane. I think pretty easy. Oh yeah. We, we'd make it work. We'd find a way. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we've got some dark skies uh, here in Saskatchewan. Um, it'd be great to have you out, Peter. You know, the place we go down in the grasslands, it's so dark that you can see the little lines that, that connect the patterns in the constellations. <laughs> sure. <you can. laughs> That's inverted imagination, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Good stuff. Okay. With that, maybe we'll move on to uh, Trevor. We'll get uh, Shane just to call up the the last slide. I don't know if you you have any slides for us, Trevor, or... Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks to uh, the presenters. It made me, as I was watching tonight's presentation, I wonder how many years of experience we have in the club. There's probably at least a hundred years of experience just in the last three uh, contributors alone. Amen. So um, really uh, just thinking about that makes me think just how lucky we are to have so much expertise uh, 
under one roof. That's really uh, pretty cool. So, yeah, I thought I would round things out tonight by talking about uh, a star. And uh, it's a star that I observed a few years ago. Some of you may know that I'm a bit of a double star aficionado. I love uh, looking at double stars. Um, Maybe once in a while, they're kind of a nice way to cap off an evening, something quick. And uh, physically connected doubles are among my favorite. There's something about just knowing that that's another star system way out there, out in the cosmos, just makes it a little more interesting for me. And uh, I observe double stars with whatever telescope I happen to be using. doesn't have to be a refractor like the one uh, chosen here um, or showing, shown here. Some of you may remember me chatting about the, my observation of Sirius B a few years ago when I was visiting relatives down in Florida. Um, beautiful, clear, calm, steady skies down in Florida in the wintertime. And um, I was able to, to see that uh, enigmatic star, double star of the month. So the, the double star I selected for this month is one that probably many of us have looked at, but maybe we didn't know what was going on with the star. So I'm going to take just a few minutes to unpack a lot of the information that uh, is available about the star Castor or Alpha Geminorum. So it's prominent right now. It's sort of high in the east this time of year. And it's actually, uh, it's the brightest star in the Gemini constellation. It's the, the star that's a little bit to the, to the right. There's Castor and Pollux, the two bright stars. And Castor is the star on the right-hand side. And there it is there. Uh, very prominent at this time of the year. It's sort of the, uh, one of the most northernmost of the bright stars in Gemini. And it's... Uh, Duplicity was first noted by uh, a British astronomer, astronomer named James Pound, uh, who was observing the star uh, in the early part of the 18th century. And uh, a lot of other uh, cultures around the world have recognized Castor and, uh, and Gemini as well. Just it's, it's sort of on uh, a lot of folks' radar. It's uh, the constellation Gemini itself is in, by a lot of cultures in the world has been seen as uh, the twins, but uh, Chinese culture, it is not. It's sort of uh, um, associated with a river. So, but, um, so let's get into Castor itself. So if you're thinking of having a look for a double star, maybe consider Castor. It's actually a very beautiful uh star, uh, two stars, almost equal brightness. Uh, the, cast, the, the, the secondary is a little bit fainter. Um, the, the, the primary, Castor A, is about magnitude 1.6, and Castor B is about magnitude 3, and they're about six seconds apart. So they should be a fairly easy split in almost any telescope, but you will need a telescope. This is not a binocular object. And they're a physical physical double. They orbit each other uh, in a period of about 445 years. So it hasn't made one complete orbit yet since it was discovered uh, in the early 1700s. And um, so it really is a fine sight. And it's a fairly easy split in most telescopes. But when you start um, looking around, there's actually another component to this star. There's Castor A and Castor B. And there's a C-type star. And it's located some distance away, about 70 seconds away uh, to the west. So it's actually oriented uh, so that it's in, in line with uh, Pollux, the other bright star. 
So that's where it is. And it's uh, another physically connected star. It's the, the distance is about a thousand astronomical units, uh, which is quite a, a considerable. This would put, put you, if you were a thousand AU from the sun, you'd be well and way out into the Oort cloud, I believe. Uh, it's quite a ways out there. And, uh, and in, in the Custer system, there's a red dwarf star way out there. And it's ninth magnitude, so it should be bright enough to be uh, visible in, in most scopes. Um, and oh yeah, I think I put a little bit more on here that Castor A and B are in elliptical orbit, and their minimum separation was back in the early 70s when they were two seconds apart. And you'd be hard-pressed, you know, it'd be pretty tight split back then, but they've widened to about six and a half seconds, or much easier now. And the maximum is, uh, will be at the end of this century. So, so it's actually not a, not a single star, not a double, but it's a triple. And as astronomers started observing this star and observing its uh, spectroscopically, they realized that uh, each of the three stars that are visible in our own backyard telescopes are in themselves double stars. So each star that's visible, each of the three stars, is actually a double star uh, and a spectroscopic binary. So uh, no telescope anywhere will be able to split them. But um, if you have a spectrograph, then you can figure out that then they were able to figure out that uh, that was the nature of these stars. So yeah, the Castor A and B, um, it's, it's uh, our telescopes may not be able to see much uh, in by way of their duplicity, but the, the C star, is interesting because it's two red dwarfs and it's actually an eclipsing binary. So they eclipse one another. So the magnitude of the C star, it's also given the variable star designation of YY Geminorm. Um, and the magnitude varies from around uh, 8.9 to 9.6, which might be kind of a, that would be a, a tough uh, observation uh, if you're just starting out in that, but if you're experienced uh, with determining magnitudes, you might notice a slight magnitude drop. And it happens relatively quickly too. The period is, is only, it's less than a day, uh, about 20 hours or 19 and a half hours, I believe. So uh, giving you an indication that these stars are very close together in a very tight orbit, um, much, much smaller orbit than, than Mercury uh, is to the sun. And um, yeah, so an interesting uh, star, to, uh, to say the least. It's uh, it's not, uh, it looks like one star when we're just looking at Gemini, but it's actually six stars or three uh, double stars together. And this is just a quick schematic here to show you how large these stars are. The two, the two largest components are uh, A-type uh, um, main sequence stars, population five. They're... Uh, um, on the main sequence, although Castor A is almost at the end of its uh, its life, it's uh, it's still fusing hydrogen into helium, but it's getting uh, close to the end of that phase and ready to begin the helium burning phase, according to Jim Taylor. And uh, Castor B is uh, a similar star, and the other four stars in the system are all red dwarfs. So um, it's another opportunity if you haven't if you've never observed a red dwarf star, um, this might be one you'll be able to catch in, uh, in your own telescope. And uh, at a distance of 51 light years, um, it's uh, a fairly, fairly faintest uh, um, 
object, but com compared to other red dwarfs, it's uh, it's a little brighter. It's uh, it's um, an M1 uh, spectral type, meaning it's the brightest of the uh, uh, one of the brightest of the red dwarf stars. And uh, so you can see there, the caster A and B are bigger than the sun, and the the red dwarf stars are smaller than the sun. And so there you go. So the next time you're out observing and thinking you might want to cap things off with a double star, maybe consider having a look at Castor. There's uh, a lot going on in uh, that uh, solitary looking star. So thank uh, you. That's really nice. I feel like I should, I feel like I should clap at the end of that. That was very nice, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. I love, uh, I love double stars. Um, can never get enough. Yeah. They're always, uh, they're just so, I like the color contrast as well. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and they look different depending on um, the telescope you're using, uh, the, the atmosphere that night, um, how high the, the, the star is in the sky. They're, they, they can always be a little, little different from time to time. Yeah, for sure. Love it. I have to, I have to ask Shane what he, what he thought of, uh, of your scope, uh, Trevor, because the the APM one five two is a frequent topic of conversation off the podcast between Shane and I, and so when you uh, when you sent me that photo, I thought, oh, that's neat. He has the telescope Shane wants, and you have the same uh, observing chair that I have, which is the Brillaback Hydra two. So that's a sweet setup. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my. Uh, that's uh, and it's it's a very easy to transport too. I, I obviously when I drove to Florida, it uh, didn't take up too much space. I was able to, to take it down and, and set it up and uh, um, show my family uh, some of the stars that uh, they have down there. Really, really nice guys in, uh, in rural Florida. Yeah, that's beautiful. Great. Well, thanks so much uh, for sharing a double star and, Trevor, you, you worked really hard to arrange this, as did uh, Michael, and, and we appreciate your help and uh, Michael's and and uh, the support of the executive there at the KW Center and and everybody uh, who joined us here tonight and everybody who's uh, who's listening. So with that, unless there's any questions or comments, we're going to start wrapping the show here. All right. As I mentioned, um, the video is going to be posted at the KW Center at some point in time. We're going to reel that off and, and send it off to them. And we're also going to put our slides up with the images and everything we were showing um, tonight, at least uh, the, the, the sort of main part of the slide deck. And that's going to go on actualastronomy.com. Well, that's it. We have 300 episodes in the can, or is it the bag? Anyway, I never thought we'd see that number as the actual astronomy podcast just began as a fun distraction for Shane and I during the few months we were sure the pandemic would last. Thanks again to Trevor, Michael, and the executive of the KW Center of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada for giving us this opportunity. Also, thanks to the KW Telescope and South Kitchener for hosting many people in person during the event. We really appreciate that. Thanks also to you, our listeners, for your kind words of support over the past three years, all your show ideas, suggestions, and questions. Also, thanks to our over 60 Patreon supporters whose financial support allows us to create new experiences and interesting shows like this one. We're happy to receive your questions, feedback, and observing reports to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, 
would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>